Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Any questions you have for me, send them to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. That email address is below in the description section of this video and in the description of every one of my videos. Okay, guys, um, I was pretty excited about the uh, RPF podcast that I did yesterday. Pretty pretty thorough breakdown of um, the scriptures and writings and some anecdotes from me about the RPF, the Rehabilitation Project Force, the Sea Org's sort of Maoist re-education camp activity. Um, and I really got to download on a lot of stuff on that that I've been holding back on or holding in for a very long time and thinking about and looking at and talking about and stuff. Anyway, so I hope you guys will check that podcast out. Um, it is 100% pure Scientology from beginning to end, and it is a very thorough. In fact, I think um, from everything I've seen, I believe I have done the most thorough breakdown of it from pretty much from A to Z. The only thing I didn't really get into in that podcast was something called the RPF's RPF. When you get into trouble on the RPF and you are in treason to the RPF, then you end up on the R's R or the RPF's RPF. And um, I didn't really get into that very much, and maybe I'll do a little little future cast on that or something. Anyway, um, wanted to throw that out there. I really, really want to want to throw it out a little appeal to everybody here that I am on a real effort here to grow my channel, get more viewers, bring in more folks. And I know that you know not everybody's going to agree with everything I have to say, and I wouldn't expect them to. But I hope that at least. I can throw some food for thought out there in a, you know, what I hope is a thoughtful and, uh, you know, maybe not always respectful, but I, you know, I do my best. Anyway, I just really want to grow this thing, and so I'm really going to keep asking you guys if you could share my channel, my content out there on your social media. I would really, really appreciate it because I don't know a better way to, um, you know, to grow this activity or get the word out about it than word of mouth. You know, you guys who like my content, please let other people know about it. Also, I want to put in a plug for uh, Patreon and for support for this channel. Uh, links below for that. And also, there is a Critical Clips channel, and I'm probably going to change the scheduling of my videos on the Critical Clips channel, where I'm just going to post five days a week on there. I have, I got to a point where I was not posting a clip the same day I would do a live stream or a Thursday video or, or our Wednesday critical conversations. But um, I think I'm going to change that so there will be five clips posted a week on the Critical Clips channel in addition to Tuesday live streams, Wednesday critical conversations, Saturday's podcast, and Sunday's Q&A video. So, wow, I guess I really am doing a lot of content, huh? <laughs> You don't really think about it. This stuff sneaks up on you. Anyway, a lot of exciting things happening. I just wanted to give a little few updates and plugs there. So thank you for um, uh, listening to all that. Now let's go ahead and get on with your questions for this week. Riley, a lot has already been asked and commented about Scientology and homophobia, prompted by L. Ron Hubbard's texts, and so by this point it's known that whenever Scientologists seem to vouch for the LGBT community, they're only doing it for the PR. 
However, I have recently witnessed quite a few cases on social media where various Scientologists would actively share or post things in favor of LGBT rights. And I don't mean posts that reference the work of a Scientologist actor or something along those lines, but rather just choosing to share their seemingly personal opinions supporting LGBT. In the past, I've learned that in the rare cases where the Church of Scientology has asked where they stand in this matter, the official line would be either everybody is equal in our eyes or we don't take a stand in this matter, it's irrelevant. So then it seems that passively, yes, when a Scientologist is cornered with this issue, he or she would claim to be supportive, but what would you make of a Scientologist who actively chooses to express a supportive opinion? Is it at all possible that in recent years there's been a slight reform for the better with this issue? Or is it more cynical along the lines of, okay guys, we have to attract positive attention, let's send out some rainbow love. Alternatively, if the social media posts are a brave Scientologist's individual action, is he or she bound to get in trouble for that? Okay, Riley, thank you for this question. And really, you're, you know, the thing about any group, okay, let's get down to like real nuance on the topic of LGBT beliefs within the Church of Scientology, and you are going to find a variety of ideas about this. You're going to find that there are people who are hardcore and go all in on what L. Ron Hubbard had to say about it. You're going to find other people uh, who are going to read what L. Ron Hubbard said about it, but it's not really going to go all the way in. And so they're not, you know, and or it might meet up with some um, other bias or other ideas that they have where it doesn't really hit them as hard. And I'll point to the example of my mother, who was a registered nurse and had a very thorough um, or, you know, at least familiarity with the subject of psychology and psychiatry through her work and knew that it wasn't a black and white issue and that not all psychiatrists were bad and everything Hubbard said about psychiatrists was not necessarily you know, the be-all, end-all of existence on that particular subject. And you get people who, especially at the public level, who are not going to go all in on every single thing Hubbard ever said. Paul Haggis is another example of a Scientologist, long-term public Scientologist, who knew, had read those, those references and books about uh, how Hubbard thought about the LGBT perversion, quote-unquote, as he put it, um, and it never really totally registered with them that, oh, this means that my church and this organization I'm involved in are homophobic, are anti-LGBT. It didn't come up. They read it. You know, Paul read the, the Science of Survival. He read the book Dianetics, but it kind of went in one ear and out the other. And that is kind of important because, of course, not everybody retains everything that they read. In fact, what I've read about that is that when you know, on first reading of a book or any you know text, you're going to remember about 15% of it. So if you really, really want to remember everything about something you've read, you got to read it about seven or eight times. <laughs> and I don't know if that's true. It's, I think it's sort of a, you know, sort of um, uh, 
rule of thumb or, you know, some sort of like estimate or something. I don't think it's really true that if anybody reads anything seven or eight times, they'll have a full 100% retention of it. But the point is that when we read things, we don't necessarily retain all the knowledge. And if it doesn't come up in your day-to-day existence in the Church of Scientology and this conflict between what Scientologists believe and the LGBT community, if this is not part of your day-to-day activities and you don't have a run-in with the church about this like Paul did when his daughter is LGBT and then the church is promoting anti-LGBT legislation and wanting that to be pushed through and they wanted, um, you know, and Paul looked at that and went, wait a minute, this isn't right. And so something happened to sort of, oh, wait a second, right? And that's how, that's a that's an example of how People start waking up from their cults as they run into this cognitive dissonance and it doesn't so easily resolve with the church's or cult's uh, dogma. Okay, so so in other words, we're going to have a, a variety of opinions and viewpoints about this, you know, because people are coming at this with lesser or more amounts of personal investment. Some people just don't care about it. Other people do. You know what I mean? Um, so that's going to happen. What I know for sure, I mean for absolutely sure about this subject with Scientology is that at the lower levels, Scientology is all about inclusiveness and letting people in and trying to get new members. You know, new people in Scientology or lower level Scientologists, people who have not yet achieved the state of clear or OT, tend to be more open and part of and in the world. Once you get to the confidential levels of Scientology, you start really pulling the flippers in and looking at the world in very different ways because you're now indoctrinated into this idea of body thetans and how you have to exorcise them through the solo auditing processes of Scientology. And, and you start thinking about people in very, very different ways. Obviously, if you thought everybody around you was infested with space, you know, space cooties, as we like to say, then you'd have a very different idea about what motivates people, why they act the way they do, why, you know, why they have the problems they have, because you'd have a whole different take on it. Um, and... Uh, so the seriousness with which you consider this material, it, it changes, right, once you get onto those OT levels and you start buying into this stuff. Okay, um, no one, as far as I know, and, and if this, um, actually I shouldn't even say no one because well, of course we have John Travolta, but who has... You know, question. There, there's there's big, huge question marks on John Travolta's sexuality, right? So this comes up as this example. I mean, he's never really admitted to being bisexual, homosexual, um, but we have these weird pictures of him and stuff like that, and so people sort of infer that he is. And John Travolta has definitely gotten onto the OT levels. But we have this other piece of information, which is that the celebrities are always the exceptions to the rules, and so they get away with things that your regular run-of-the-mill Scientologist is not going to get away with, especially when you get up to somebody like a John Travolta or a Tom Cruise. So maybe they allowed Tom Cruise to do these OT levels. Where I'm going with this is that they don't 
As a matter of course, when I was in Scientology and in the Sea Org, it was made abundantly super clear to me that no one was going to be allowed onto the OT levels if they were a practicing homosexual or part of, you know, practicing LGBT. Just period. Just it wasn't going to happen. And the references on it were crystal clear. And we know how David Miscavige feels about the LGBT community. He uses the um, LGBT slurs and uh, makes fun of people with that. And he, I, I'm quite sure that he's that he's a bit homophobic. So from the very, very top, there is not the idea that the LGBT community is this is this wonderful place, and Hubbard's writings on it are pretty clear. So, do you have individual Scientologists who might be in the world, who might have friends who are LGBT, who might be like, hey, these are okay guys? Of course you could. Absolutely. But when that Scientologist gets to the place where it's going to be time to get onto the OT levels, uh, if they are practicing LGBT, then they are going to hear about it. I just, I, you know, I, every piece of information I have about this, every piece of experience I have with it, that's where it goes. So, um, so could you, you know, have LGBT-friendly PR? Absolutely, definitely. Could you have Scientologists? who don't really pay a whole lot of attention to that and, you know, get along with and, and want human rights and buy into the whole human rights propaganda of Scientology and, and therefore support the LGBT community? Absolutely. So all of these things can and obviously are true at the same time. And with any group, you're going to have this variety of viewpoint and expression. So I guess that's my sort of take on this is it really depends on who you're talking to. But at the end of the day, we have made it abundantly clear and shown in writing how it is that Scientologists are supposed to think about this, according to what L. Ron Hubbard wrote. And at the end of the day, as we saw with Paul Haggis, when push comes to shove, it's going to be the church's way or the highway. And if you get into a conflict with the church over this issue and they start pulling out the Hubbard references on it, you're going to lose 100% of the time. So that's kind of really, at the end of the day, how it goes. And um, I don't know. I don't know if this clarified anything, but it does, you know, it's, it, it's the fully nuanced picture of it. So there you go. Anonymous Erica. How would Hubbard know what happened millions of years ago? How could any one person report on that? I don't understand how he could say these preposterous things and people wouldn't ask how he knows that. Oh, no, it's very clear how Hubbard learned and knows things in Scientology. It was his research, you see. Hubbard was putting people on to... Okay, when it comes to information about past lives, the way that this evolved was Dianetics came out in 1950, and it was a science of the mind, or so it said. And the idea was to recall traumatic episodes of stress, trauma, pain, and unconsciousness in your past, in, the, in this lifetime, and go back over through, through, a, through a sort of regression therapy or, or reliving those incidents or experiences and talking about them and telling the auditor about them, you were supposed to be relieving the trauma, stress, pain, and unconsciousness of those incidents. Those are called engrams. 
And those developed through 1950 as people started practicing this on one another. The, the, the idea with the therapy, with the therapeutic element of Dianetics is that you have a, this incident of pain and trauma and unconsciousness. You talk about it, and if it doesn't resolve, if it won't release, if it doesn't, you know, uh, surrender to happiness and joy and, oh, I feel so much better about this now through recounting the incident, then you look for an earlier incident, an earlier similar one. And if that, in recounting that, doesn't blow it, doesn't, doesn't make you feel better, you look for an earlier similar incident. The, the idea, the theory is that these are in chains. They are connected through perceptics or ideas or, or concepts of similarity. So, you know, if the time when you were 20 years old and got hit over the head doesn't resolve, then you look for the time that you were 15 years old and got hit over the head. And if that doesn't resolve, the time you were seven years old. And then what ended up happening is people were looking for earlier, just, just based only on that principle. Hubbard said, this is how it is. He didn't say originally past lives. He said, there's an earlier time where this is going on. And in fact, the very first wild idea that Dianetics was throwing out was that there were prenatal episodes or incidents that could affect you, pre-being pre you know, being born. And... That was controversial. What? You can remember being born. You can remember these incidents. And Hubbard talked about even incidents going back to the sperm and the ovum. And, I mean, he got into some pretty goofy stuff. And then people started talking about remembering things in earlier lives, okay, way back before they were born. And, it, and in 1950, this was very controversial. In fact, that uh, Hubbard, you know, said they tried to shut it down. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but he claimed he was, you know, going for truth. And if the earlier similar theory holds up and works, then if going back to an earlier time in an earlier life resolves the incident, then that's what resolves the incident, right? That was sort of the attitude Hubbard took on, about it in his public utterances about the, about this. Then they started developing these incidents more, right? Like, okay, well, if this is if this is something that can happen, then let's see what happens. And they kept going and going. And then in 1951, Hubbard got hold of this electropsychometer that this guy Volney Matheson had invented or made for him. And um, they started using this electronic device that has a little dial on it, and you hold these cans or electrodes, and it sends an electronic signal over your over your body, and you uh, measure skin resistance. And this is supposed to be a measure or sort of, you know, um, microscope into your soul, into what's going on, you know, with you and your mind. And you can find these charged electrically charged incidents of pain, these engrams, and run them out. So if the meter that they were hooking people up to would, would if the needle was, was ticking or clicking or falling on a moment of, of uh, on an engram, on a moment of pain and unconsciousness, then it was assumed that there's something valid there. Because why is the dial going? What, what's making that happen? Something. And keep in mind that this is in the 1950s. Okay, it's a long time ago. 
So um, people were not as savvy about electronics, and they didn't know things. And science was, you know, was, you know, and there's all these attitudes about this. So people could buy into the idea that if a dial moves, if a needle moves on a dial, and the meter is saying that there is something there because it's boing, boing, boing. And you're remembering, you know, being in a spaceship 20 million years ago. Well, it must be something. There must be something to it. And this was about as much credibility as Hubbard had. And people bought it, you know, because he was the one who said that this meter was measuring electrical resistance, which therefore measured electrical charge, which therefore meant that there was a sort of energy field around the body, or there was this energy mass called a mind, and that mind had these, you know, energized memories in it, stored in it, like sheets of energy as pictures, as mental image pictures. And that's how Hubbard explained it, and people bought it. And he did a lot of quote-unquote research in 1951, 1952, diving down into, well, what's what's back there? And supposedly was finding incidents that would replicate from one person to another to another. So Sally Sue could be audited and, and sent back down the time track to 20 million years ago and could find this incident where she was a slave on this place that was floating around in space called Arxlycus. And then they could audit Bill and send him down 20 million years ago. And sure enough, Bill's there floating around in space on Arxlycus too. Well, that's all the proof you need, right? Now, obviously what was happening there, and if you go and look at the transcripts of Hubbard's auditing of people, the man was a master of asking leading questions, and he led people exactly where he wanted them to go. So it wasn't that there was independent corroboration from two or three or four different cases, case studies of these incidents. It's that the same auditor was driving all these people down to and suggesting and leading them down the, the primrose path to remembering these past episodes of trauma and stress. And frankly, nobody in Dynetics and Scientology who stuck around really questioned it or really got down and dirty and deep about it, at least not that we know of. You know, from that time period, we really only have limited numbers of writings about what was going on then. But Hubbard's lectures on this are pretty clear. And you can kind of piece together from all of this that uh, that Hubbard was a horrible, horrible researcher. He even admitted to being a bad scientist and a bad lab man. He said he didn't have the patience or, or you know, the, the, the inclination to really do a thorough standard scientific job. So, you know, so people who buy into this stuff, uh, it's sort of a let the buyer beware kind of thing. You know, they're really just buying into a bunch of stuff and nonsense. But that's how it propagated. And, um, and the idea, the credibility was, you know, multiple people saying the same things. Hubbard writing all this stuff down, publishing books about it, starting in 1951 with a book called Scientology, A History of Man, or originally titled What to Audit. So he was laying out these incidents, and he was saying, this is what you audit. So every auditor was then given a blueprint of find this incident and find this incident and find this incident, all 
way, way, way back down the time track, you know, to, you know, hundreds of millions and billions of years ago. So that's how the whole thing got propagated. And uh, there you go. Melanie, do you think there's evidence that people who are in a lower economic situation are better critical thinkers? People wrongly assume that someone's economic slash educational situation decides a person's true intellect. So do you think that people in these situations have to think critically because they've been in abusive situations, maybe in a job role, or have been conned or no actual scammers? Obviously, scammers are rife through all levels of society and probably more prevalent in higher echelons. Okay, thanks for the question. I would not dare to say that people in lower economic statuses or in lower socioeconomic situations are inherently better critical thinkers. I I have no reason to think that that would be true. What I do have reason to believe is that people who are in traumatic situations or who have to undergo rough life situations tend to think a little bit more pragmatically or practically bit more realistically because they know how you know resources can be scarce and how resources need to be gathered and how you know it can be you know um, a real fight for survival and so they tend to think and think think through a little bit more um, I think the best word I can come up with here is more practically. You know, people who get idealistic, people who um, get into a lot of book learning and a lot of like, okay, let's try to figure out philosophically why things are happening, tend to get uh, or can become, I shouldn't even say tend to get, but you can certainly find people, you know, who are very well read, very, very smart, very intellectual people, but are utterly clueless about how life really works because they spend all their time in ivory towers and libraries and don't spend time out on the street on the real world. Uh, and the real world is harsh, and it is rough, and might is right. And, uh, you know, when you're scraping for existence, you, you know, morality becomes, you know, the, the interesting philosophic discussions about morality don't matter when you got a hungry kid or when you haven't eaten in a few days, right? So, um, so that's where they kind of, that's what I mean, the sort of the school of hard knocks tends to be a rough taskmaster. And you either learn the lessons and survive and um, make your way with street smarts. You know, we call that street smarts or street savvy. Um, and get along in life and from a very practical point of view where it's harder to fool you with smoke and mirrors. And maybe that's a reflection of better critical thinking, but I would call it really more practical thinking. Because critical thinking involves thinking through problems and sequences and logic and understanding you know, logical fallacies and, and where we fall down in our thinking. And if you don't learn about that stuff... Um, then it doesn't really necessarily come natural to you. There's a certain amount of street smarts and practicality that can get you a long way, but you can still be fooled easily. So, um, And you still have biases and you still have prejudices, and you might not even be aware of what your biases and prejudices are or how they work so you can be... Um, so you could fall for, you know, not knowing those things about yourself or about other people and therefore, um, you know, run into just as many troubles as anybody else. I mean, hell, look at how many low-income people fall for multi-level marketing scams out of pure desperation. 
you know, a real, um, well, I don't want to say real, but, you know, a good critical thinker, somebody who really can see through nonsense or can think their way through the consequences of their decisions or, or consequences of, of choices presented to them, would rapidly be able to see any MLM scheme is, a, is, is, is an endless recruiting pyramid scheme that quickly runs out of people to recruit and quickly runs out of money. And it's really just a scam. And everyone involved is getting scammed. So, you know, that would be an example of where there's not good critical thinking and lower socioeconomic status folks because they almost are the bulk of who joins and gets part of um, MLMs, right, all over the world. So that would be an example I could cite as to why I'm, I, I'm saying or talking about this the way that I'm talking about it. So anyway, I don't know, kind of a broad question. I hope it was a broad enough answer to, you know, to, to take in some of the most important parts of this. And there you go. Helmet. Do you see a connection between the volcano on the book Dianetics and OT3? Yes, I do, because L. Ron Hubbard specifically said that there is a connection. He had Dianetics um, revised, all the dust jackets of all the books of Dianetics and Scientology revised in the late 1960s and early 70s in order to try to put imagery on them that would okay, that would re-stimulate people, okay? So in Scientology, and I've explained this before, but you have this concept of re-stimulation. Something that's happened to you in the past, whether it's in the current lifetime or the distant, distant past, um, could have happened to you that was really traumatic, really horrible, right? And, um, And then in the present time, if you see or hear or perceive reminders approximations of that traumatic episode from your past now, then it will re-stimulate that, that the, the energy of it or the, the perceptions of it will kind of kick back subconsciously or unconsciously in your mind, and it will affect you, right? And it will affect your decision-making process. It will cause you to like or dislike things, etc. Hubbard thought he had figured all of this out and that the Dianetics, that the pyramids, or sorry, not the pyramids, the volcanoes, were part of the OT3 narrative, right? And so everybody on Earth has suffered that. So that's something that we all have in common, is we have this incident of the volcanoes exploding and the genocide and all of that. So let's use that. Let's let's trigger that. Let's boink that by showing a picture of a volcano uh, connected with the concept of the mind on the cover of Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, and that should all by itself re-stimulate people and get them to want to buy the book. And if you can explain the logic behind that, congratulations, because I actually can't. I can just tell you that that's what Hubbard thought. Like, I don't, you know, this idea of re-stimulation is interesting and probably has some degree of truth to it when it comes to PTSD or, you know, how people can get um, something happens in the past that's truly horrible, and then reminders of it make them feel uncomfortable, make them not feel so great, make them feel uh, headachy or bad or, or put them out of sorts and that kind of thing, or scared or anxious or fearful. But I don't understand how it's supposed to create interest in buying a book. 
<laughs> and that's the part that's always eluded me. The logic of that has always sort of thrown me off a little bit. Like, okay, so Hubbard changes the covers of all the books to have space people and guys in white uniforms and white helmets. And uh, he changes Dianetics, so it's going to have a, a volcano on the cover. And this is going to trigger or re-stimulate stuff from the past. But how does that equate to them wanting to then buy the books? That's what never really connects. And um, if anything, you'd think they would want to avoid the subject of the re-stimulation. That would really be how it, would, how it should work. So seems a little silly to me, really. Uh, but that was, honest to God, that was Hubbard's logic for doing that. And it was a big project, and it took a lot of time and effort on the part of Scientologists to change all those book covers out. And, um, and that was a thing for a long time. And that is why Dianetics has a volcano. Adria Vici Haloup. Why doesn't Scientology buy their own island? That way, they'd avoid taxes, government interference, etc., going back to their Sea Org roots. Why do they bother with missions and orgs and Sea Org bases anymore? Is it for the convenience of their adherents? They aren't gaining or keeping many adherents by being in other countries. It seems Scientology and the rest of the world would be happier if Scientology bought their own island and did their own thing. Well, actually, no, that really wouldn't work at all, because all the writings of Dianetics and Scientology all talk about propagating and disseminating Scientology, getting it out in the world, being part of the world. There's an issue called what we expect of a Scientologist. It talks about going out in the world, and and um, you don't have to necessarily be an auditor or a professional Scientologist, but you got to get out there and be successful and rub elbows with people and, and, and get the word out there, right? So you can't really do that if it's all you know sequestered off on some private island somewhere then it would really become a kooky ufo weirdo mysterious you know sort of religion or, or cult and nobody would it would shrink even further and david miscavige is not particularly interested in that because he you know wants those sweet sweet dollars from as many people as he can get them from you know when i talk about how david miscavige isn't trying to grow scientology I have really been thinking about this, and I don't know if it's it, – it might just be just pure incompetence on his part. It might be that he does want to grow it, but he's so clueless about how to run an organization, how to run promotion and marketing in an effective manner – because he thinks he knows everything. He thinks he's the smartest guy in the room everywhere he goes on every topic. So – you know, it might be that the guy is just so purely incompetent that he's desperately trying to grow Scientology right now, and it's just not working. However, let's be clear, because another thing you said in your question is that in other countries, they're not gaining or, or so many adherents. Actually, the only place Scientology is really growing at all is in other countries. Uh, it's kind of similar, again, to the MLM scam, right? You use up a territory and you sort of saturate it so that you can't really work it anymore. And then you go find another place to go. And this is how MLM spread all through the United States and then had to go to other countries. And they opened up China and the Philippines and you know Taiwan and stuff. I mean, you wouldn't believe how much MLM activity is in Taiwan. Well, guess what else is in Taiwan? A lot of Scientologists, because that's where they have a little, you know, a little concentrated growing base, or at least it was growing for some time. 
So they're trying to find new markets, okay? And um, that's my point there, and that's the only place that it really does seem to be growing. Uh, anyway, so no, I don't think the island idea would be very uh, productive for them because it would it would really also limit, you know, the, the whole, um, let me put it this way. The whole scam of Scientology is built and centered around the idea that you get involved in it, you love it, you want to invest in it, you you pay you your money, you do your services, but it's also but it's built on this idea that we're going to clear the planet. And clearing the planet's a very popular mantra in Scientology. We're going to take over the world. Eventually Scientology is going to run the earth. It's going to be a Scientology world. And wouldn't that be amazing? Because everybody would then be clear and OT and we could, you know, the society would be would be wonderful and everybody would get along and there wouldn't be any war, there wouldn't be any crime, there wouldn't be any illiteracy, there wouldn't be any problems. Not the kind of problems we have now. And uh, wouldn't this be an amazing thing and everybody regains their spiritual potential and ability? That's the pipe dream of Scientology. So if you were to take all of it, shut it down, and move it all to an island, doesn't really fit with that picture. You see what I mean? So anyway, I think that's uh, I think that's what I can say about that. So there you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Cyprian Ivanov, what do Scientologists believe about fluoride? Do they believe in fluoridation conspiracy theories? Cyprian, I actually don't know. I never once heard a fluoride conspiracy theory when I was in Scientology. I heard a lot of conspiracies, which I've talked about in detail, but fluoride was never one of them. And I think most Scientologists would eschew that. I think they... I think they um, would be more accepting of. I don't think they go that far down the conspiracy rabbit hole. I have seen, though, I have seen some Scientologists, and it's just a few Scientologists and former Scientologists, ex-Scientologists, talk about chemtrails and and you know that kind of the pollutants and the chemicals and the GMOs and all that stuff. So, so some people can go down those rabbit holes, but Scientology as a whole. I've never seen endorse or push a fluoride conspiracy theory. Simon, why do you think that the U.S. appears to have more homegrown cults than the U.K.? Uh, Simon, my answer to this question is because the United States is much larger than the U.K. by orders of magnitude and uh, population-wise, and I think that um, so just, you know, you're going to get more groups and whatnot, but also the United States is very religious centric, um, and was founded by destructive cults. I mean, the people coming over here for, you know, fleeing religious persecution in Europe or in England were hardcore evangelical, you know, Protestant cultists. I mean, they were very our way or the highway. This is how it is. Um, you know, kind of check all the boxes of destructive cults. So, you know, in terms of European settlers coming over here, yeah, there was certainly a yearning for freedom of thought and belief. But there was also, but once they established themselves here, it wasn't about freedom of thought and belief. It was about our way or the highway, right? And, and if you don't follow and believe what we believe, out you go. So, uh, so this has kind of been a tradition in America since the beginning, <laughs> <laughs> Sadly. Eve Ritchie. 
I was wondering, are there any songs that when you hear them remind you of your experience with Scientology? Yes, there is one song that was beaten into my head hundreds, maybe uh, hundreds, probably, maybe thousands, but certainly hundreds of times. And that is the Black Eyed Peas, I Got a Feeling. Yeah, that song was played at every single Scientology fundraiser I went to in Twin Cities, Las Vegas, Portland, Seattle. I mean, this was one of the most popular songs to use at Scientology fundraisers, and I heard it everywhere, and it drove me nuts. Totally ruined the song for me. And uh, to this day, to this day, if I hear it, I think of Scientology fundraisers. Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me blabber on here. I really appreciate your viewership and support. Um, do check out my Critical Clips channel if you are interested in my earlier answers to questions or subject matter or clips uh, from my work. Um, I think that that is a, a great little channel, and I would really like to grow that one too. But um, like I said, I really, 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 really want to get more viewership, so please share uh, this content around. And also, by the way, if you subscribe to this channel, click that little note, that little bell icon too, so you guys get notifications when I post new content, because it happens all the time. Okay, guys, um, we will have an exciting week this next week. I'll, I will be doing a live stream on Tuesdays on Tuesday, and we will have the Critical Conversation show on Wednesday. And I hope you guys will join us for that. I've been having a lot of fun sitting here with Melissa talking to you guys directly on the phone right here. And, um, and I would love to see more of you there. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.